This gun sure looks deadly, but it's not the least bit deadly unless I point it at someone and pull the trigger. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. With me, I have Michael Wiltkoff, uh, also known as Brother Augustine. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I am Michael Wiltkoff, also known as Brother Augustine. Uh, I have a YouTube channel called Brother Augustine and uh, well as a minor presence on other social media platforms, even though I'm posting less and less as the days go on. I think it's good for the soul, ultimately. Um, and I, I wrote a, a book about five years ago called On the Masons and Their Lies that uh, Peyton here has uh, invited me to come speak about. So thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. I, I definitely wanted to have you on this topic because I think... Um, a lot of people don't know much about Freemasonry, but they hear it a lot, and um, they know that it's a group that is very connected with history and behind the scenes of a lot of uh, different major events in history, as well as um, a lot of very influential people who, have, would you could say, shaped our history that we have today were Freemasons. So I definitely sure. wanted to talk about the subject, and um, I guess first we should start off with what is Freemasonry, if you could explain that briefly. Sure, so Freemasonry, as it presents itself, is the world's largest and oldest fraternity. Uh, I believe it was in 1725 that the United Grand Lodge of England first formed. Um, and so it was. it's highly likely it was a series or a, a group of smaller groups before that, but that was when it became public. Um, interestingly enough, in those very first rituals, there were references to Christ that are no longer there uh, because within a very short amount of time, uh, certain uh, members of occult groups started to join masonry, groups that were made illegal in the countries that they were living in. So they met under the cover of masonry and started introducing occult symbolism, hermetic symbolism. Uh, so you very, very quickly see a change in certain aspects of the ritual, even though ultimately I would argue that it was uh, never truly Christian to begin with. Um, and it's all over the planet. Uh, it works different ways in different countries, different ways in different parts of this country as well. Ostensibly, each state in the United States has its own autonomous Grand Lodge that is not beholden to any person or group. I have no idea whether that's true or whether someone is controlling all 50 of them behind the scenes. Uh, I did not make it to the level where that information would be revealed to me. Um, and uh, to a large degree, you only know what they tell you. And in Albert Pike's seminal Masonic work, Morals and Dogma, he goes so far as to openly say that they lie to their lower level members about what's going on there, uh, kind of as a way of separating the wheat from the chaff. 
you know, it, his attitude is very much, if you're dumb enough to believe what's told to you at the low levels, then you deserve only to be misled, which is a direct quote from Morals and Dogma, deserve only to be misled. So what you think masonry is largely depends on your, your own mind as well as what's shown to you. Um, so if you ask 100 guys, they might give you 100 different answers, and they might all be right according to the information they have. So ultimately, what is masonry is hard to answer, but they will tell you the world's largest and oldest fraternity. Yeah. Um, so I think the next question I want to ask, because you made reference to it, that you have some personal experience with masonry. And uh, if you want to just kind of just explain that of, of how you got involved with masonry, uh, where you went and, and why you left. Sure, sure. So this was a, a, I have to preface this by saying during this period of my life, I was heavily using marijuana. And so my memory of exact dates and what happened when is not always uh, exact. Um, I'm sure that in different interviews, I've, I've said something happened on a specific date or a different date. And people will use stuff like to say, look, well, he's obviously lying. He said this in one video, this in another one. Okay, I'm not lying. I was just high the whole time for this period of my life that I'm talking about. And I don't have that great of a memory anyway for things like dates and, and what month a specific thing happened. But I'm pretty sure I joined Freemasonry at the end of 2015. I know in my book, I wrote down the exact dates, but like we talked about in the pre-show a little bit, I haven't looked at the book in a long time. But I'm positive that in, in the introduction of my book, I have the dates when I received the first, second, and third degrees because I was looking at my documentation when I wrote that chapter. I've since burned all of my Masonic stuff, which interestingly is one of the two videos I've ever had banned from YouTube. I put, I recorded myself and my friends, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, burning all my Masonic stuff. I uploaded a video set to the Striper song, To Hell With The Devil, and immediately got a copyright strike and the video got taken down, sadly. But at the time I wrote the book, I still had my documentation. Um, I joined Masonry because I was working uh, for Greenpeace at the time in San Diego. I was on the door team at that time, later was on the street team, meaning at malls and whatnot, outside grocery stores. On the door team, you go door to door trying to either get someone to sign up for a subscription to Greenpeace, like a monthly donation, or to get someone who's already donated to continue donating and or donate more. So there was a guy whose house I knocked on the door and he had a square and compass on the wall, you know, the G inside the square and compass, the famous Masonic logo. And I asked him a little bit about it. So what is this thing? I've seen this before. And he said, it's Freemasonry. And I said, well, okay, but what is that, right? And he said the world's oldest and largest fraternity, but he was very kind of cryptic about it. He wouldn't give me any meaningful in-depth answers as to what they did there. And the way my mind works, this was immediately intriguing to me. And I wanted to find out more. It's like, well, why won't you tell me? Like, what secrets What secrets do you hold, magician? You know, like I could tell there was something going on there. And at this part of my life, I was also not a member of any particular occult group, but I was certainly a new age person who was kind of open to whatever spiritual idea happened to cross my, my mind at any given time. I wasn't particularly discerning about it. And every day on the way to and from work, um, in San Diego, I would pass by the big Scottish Rite Center. I forgot the name of the freeway, but I would pass it twice a day. Uh, it's impossible to miss this building. And so one day, me and a coworker uh, went there after work. So I said to her, hey, I'm curious about this thing. Do you want to check it out? You know. So she said, sure. Uh, and so we went there. And one of the first things that happened, which I love, and I, I, I get excited every time I tell this story, this guy said, we said, well, hey, well, what is this place? And he looked at her and said, well, you're a woman, so you can't join. And she was a hyper feminist. 
so I, I took some joy in that because even at the time I was anti-feminist, even though I was still kind of a liberal in the Greenpeace days, but I was starting to kind of convert towards the more conservative ways. And I never really considered myself uh, much of a feminist anyway. Uh, but we go in there, we got our Greenpeace shirts on, I got my long hair, I look like a hippie. In some ways I am a hippie at the time. And this very nice older man in the suit comes up to me and I'm kind of really interested, fascinated, it's probably a better word than interested, by the symbolism all over the walls. They have all these paintings, all these symbols, and I don't know what any of it is, it's all new to me. And I was always a person that was just trying to seek the truth, right? Uh, that was always kind of my goal, even though it led me to some dark places like the pickup artist subculture uh, and Freemasonry and the occult. I'm convinced that that same innate desire to find out the truth that brought me through those dark alleyways eventually led me to Christianity and to Orthodoxy in particular. I just kind of took a long way of getting there, but it was all kind of driven by the same motivation to just like, well, what is the truth, right? What What is the actual real life situation going on here behind the propaganda and the culture and society and everything. So I was very interested in it. And this guy was very nice to me, this older gentleman, uh, who I considered a mentor throughout my stay uh, in Freemasonry. And everyone was wearing suits. And I'd never really been around like a bunch of older men, like established successful guys wearing suits. It's kind of intimidating, kind of intriguing. And they were very nice to me, which I thought was very cool. And I asked them, well, how would I go about joining? And they said, well, you have to be in California for a year. At that point, I don't think I've been in California for a full year because I'd gone back to Hawaii where I lived before that for a little while. But they kind of gave me a, a loophole because I was in California before I'd went back to uh, Hawaii earlier in my life. Complicated situation. But I ended up joining Freemasonry as what's called an entered apprentice. Again, I think at the end of 2015. And then quickly got my second degree called fellow craft, third degree called master mason after that. And then once you've got your master mason degree, excuse me, from what's called the Blue Lodge, the third degree of the Blue Lodge, you can then join what are called appendant bodies, such as the Scottish Rite, the York Rite, the Shriners, and there's like dozens of other groups that are less public. Um, some are more like ethnic oriented, some are, uh, there's some Egyptian kind of flavored lodge, I forgot what it was called. Um, but the Shriners, I, I did not join because I, I was not really into the whole Arab thing. Like this was right around the time when ISIS was a big deal, if I'm remembering correctly. And I was like, I just don't really want anything to do with anything that looks Islamic, you know. Uh, so I joined the York Rite and the Scottish Rite, uh, got the 32nd degree in the Scottish Rite, uh, which in the southern jurisdiction of the United States is not a big deal because you get it on your first day in the Scottish Rite. They show you five Scottish Rite degrees. The 32nd is the last of those five. I later went to Guthrie, Oklahoma to see all 32 of the degrees, except I think the ninth, because I was asleep in the car for that one. It was, a, it was a long few days. It was like 10 degrees a day for three days. And the, the degree is like a little play. It's like a little drama that you watch. Uh, so I got the 32nd degree in the Scottish Rite and then became a Knight Templar in the York Rite and then became an officer in four different groups. I think at my most active, I was a prompter in the Scottish Rite as well as an actor in the fourth degree of the Scottish Rite called Secret Master, for which I won a Pike Award, uh, which is just like a little trophy of Albert Pike's head that they give you for something. I think it was like first time performance or something. Uh, in the York Rite, I was a an officer. Oh, there's three different bodies in the York Rite. I don't. I wasn't a Knight Templar officer. I think it was in the it was in the Royal Arch. I was an officer in the Royal Arch, and in the Blue Lodge, I was an officer. I think I was the, was I the senior steward or the, 
junior D. I think I was a senior steward or the chaplain when I left. Um, I was about to become a junior deacon, if I remember correctly. And I was also an officer in a minor lecture group called Allied Masonic Degrees, where you basically, it was very casual. You kind of just hang out and give lectures on interesting topics or listen to them from the other guys in the group, which was my favorite group because it required, you know, the least actual meetings and things of that nature. Because um, in the Blue Lodge, you have to do this stated monthly meeting, which is just, could be a five minute email. Instead, they waste your time, make you drive down to the lodge and dress up for it. Um, and so that was pretty much the extent of my um, participation. And I was very interested. It was like my whole like social circle was Masonic at that point, or almost all. Uh, girls I was dating, I would occasionally bring to a meeting, to a dinner. I would invite friends to come see me be uh, installed as an officer. Um, and I'd never really joined anything before, like maybe not since Boy Scouts as a very little kid. Because uh, my adult life, I moved around every six months to a year and a half. I never had roots anywhere. I never joined a group or an organization of any kind. And so that was kind of the first time as an adult that I actually had roots in something, you know, where I was being mentored by people, where I was learning a lot of interesting philosophy. And I, and I tried to emphasize in my book, in my interviews, that I had a really great time there. Like nothing bad ever happened to me there. I didn't see any like satanic rituals or child abuse. Like I didn't see or experience anything like that. There might be in some degree far above what I got to. I don't, I genuinely don't know. You know, they tell you 33rd degree is the highest degree of the Scottish Rite. Do I believe that story? Not necessarily, right? But I had friends that were 33s, um, guys that were liberals, guys that were conservatives, kind of all over the place. Uh, but to get the 33, it's like basically a lifetime service award to the Scottish Rite, unless they give it to you kind of as an honorary thing, like what Manly P. Hall got. He, I think they gave him an honorary 33, uh, and he wasn't, was he even a Mason at the time? I don't recall the exact situation, but I believe he was given an honorary 33rd degree just because of his lectures and influence in the world of the occult and, and Gnosticism and whatnot. And uh, even though I grew up Jewish, uh, got bar mitzvah and all that stuff, I never took the Bible seriously or, you know, I was an atheist functionally my whole life. And so there are parts of the Masonic degrees where a section of scripture is read. Uh, sometimes from the Old Testament, sometimes from the New Testament, where you're doing what's called the perambulation around the altar, where if you're the candidate, the guy getting the degree, you're blindfolded while you hold someone's arm and he kind of walks you around. And so that was kind of my first exposure to the Bible in decades, really, maybe, maybe 10, 12 years by that point. Um, and so I started to look a little more into the Bible, but always with this hermetic kind of occult lens that I was learning in masonry and my other occult studies that I was doing at the time. Um, and during all of this, time when I'm still working at Greenpeace and I'm a Mason, I, I was canvassing outside of, I believe, a Whole Foods in San Diego, San Diego area. And a woman came out of their grocery store and I said, tried to, I don't remember what my opening line was, but I tried to get her to sign up for Greenpeace. And she said, oh no, thank you, I'm a Christian. And I said, okay, I, I'm not, I won't try to pitch you. I'm just genuinely curious. What is it about being a Christian that would prevent you from signing up for Greenpeace? And so she talks a little bit about the politics involved and how it had a sort of communist leanings, uh, things of that nature. And we had a great conversation. And um, then I said, okay, well, thank you for stopping to talk with me. And then she left and I went on with my canvassing. And about 40 minutes later, this woman came back to the site where I was canvassing. And she had gone out and bought me a Bible and brought it to me at the site because I had showed interest in Christianity. Um, which is something that changed my whole life because 
I didn't look at it for a while. I didn't open it or care about it, but something stuck with me where I thought, okay, this woman just took all this time out of her day to do this thing for me, this like pothead loser, total stranger, just out of a desire to do something nice for me, like out of love for me, this person I never met before. And that stuck with me that the, whatever this Christianity thing was, you know, that this woman, her character was shaped by it and it was something positive and loving. That, that stuck with me, even though I was fornicating and living in you know, my polyamorous occult filth that I was living at the time. That stuck with me. Later, as a result of this polyamorous filth, I got myself into a really bad situation. I did something really bad. Um, and it was kind of one of those situations that you don't have any good options. Like, do you come clean and potentially ruin something or not come clean and ruin your soul? Right. Like something I was losing sleep over this thing that I did. And uh, there were there was no way out, frankly, there was no way out. And so I thought, well, I have no answer. Maybe there's an answer in this Bible. This woman got me. Right. So I pulled this new title. It was an NIV leather New Testament. I don't think it's in this room. It must be on my bookshelf downstairs, one of my bookshelves downstairs. And I did something which I later found out St. Augustine also did. My patron saint also did when he was first exposed to the New Testament, though I didn't know that at the time where I just sort of close my eyes, flip through the pages and thought, okay, I'll, I'll stop when I feel like it. Okay, and then I'll circle my finger around the page and stop when I feel like it. And maybe I'll be guided to the you know thing I'm supposed to see. And that's actually exactly what happened. My finger landed on 1 John 4, 4, part of which says, he who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world. And in some mystical way that I'll never fully understand, something made sense to me about that, where I thought, okay, well, if this Jesus character, which I, you know, didn't know anything about really couldn't have told you the chalcedonian definition of hypostatic unions or anything obviously um i thought okay well if jesus is he um what was it he he who is in me if if that if i pray to jesus and then he is in me and he who is in the world is like this problem i'm dealing with then maybe if i pray to this jesus person maybe he'll help me out of the situation right because i have no answer and I want to be clear that I had um, tried like speaking to God before, but never, never in a way that required anything of me, like any real faith. Like uh, I had drug addictions in my earlier life and I'd been smoking a lot of pot again, like I said, and I had written letters to God saying, God, if you're real, please take this addiction away. But you know, not in any way that would require me to give up my fornication lifestyle, my occult lifestyle, almost treating God like a genie or something. Like prove yourself to me by fixing me, you know, something like that. Uh, and this was the first time when I thought, okay, this felt different. I'm praying to Jesus, right? Who growing up Jewish, you know, is not considered a, a hero of the faith, obviously, um, even though he is the ultimate hero of the Jewish faith. And for some reason, after I prayed to Jesus, I, I got this conviction to come clean about this thing I had done and that he was giving me the strength to kind of go through with this thing that I couldn't have done on my own. And so I told the truth about the situation and nothing happened to me, like nothing bad happened. There were no negative consequences whatsoever. And so that kind of showed me for the first time, okay, maybe this, there's something to this, this Jesus stuff, right? And then almost as confirmation of that, um, sorry, I'm just turning the heat off in my house because it's getting warm in here with the headphones on. Um, almost as confirmation of that, I had an experience that if I were to have something like that now, I think I would I would take to my priest immediately, right, for discernment. But at the time, 
I, I didn't know any better. And I had a lot of spiritual experiences just with the drug use and the occultism, like playing with demons. Like I knew that non-physical entities were real at the time. I'd experienced them. And I had this experience of something. I couldn't have told you what it was at the time. Looking back, I think it was an angel of just this, this it was like a tall man that was just kind of made of light. Now, every Orthodox who just heard me say that is immediately going to think it was the devil. I know they will. Because if someone said that, that's what I would, would first think. Except that moment was the first time I ever understood what sin meant. Like I knew certain things were considered sins in the Christian religion. But this being's presence was so pure that it kind of made me feel filthy. And, and this is hard to put into words. because um, it, it was like something that took place in my soul. It was kind of like not realizing I was dirty until I was in the presence of something clean. And I didn't know, okay, is this Jesus? Is this the guy I just prayed to that just showed up or what? Uh, and I, there wasn't really a clear face of any kind. So I, I, I didn't know. Of course, it would take me a long time to guess that this thing was an angel. Um, but after that, so now I got out of this bad situation, kind of scot-free. And then I had this kind of experience kind of convicting me of my sin and kind of you know, confirming that this was all real, there's something to it. I called up this woman that had been doing myofascial release uh, for my back because I had had a bunch of back injuries. She was a Christian, uh, a Protestant Christian, who was praying for me throughout like all this time that I've been seeing her. And, you know, I thought it was kind of silly. You know, she had the scripture quotes up on the wall in her office. Um, but she was probably the only person praying for me at all, besides maybe this woman who brought me the Bible. Uh, so, you know, pe people will sometimes say, you know, all, everything outside of orthodoxy is from the demons. But I'll tell you, the people praying for me were Protestants, okay? The, these people that went out of their way to help me. And I'm never going to say that that was inspired by the devil, that they saw me in my sin and just wanted me to accept Christ. Now, maybe they didn't have the full definition of what that meant, but according to their knowledge, they were doing the best they could to help someone they saw was in pain and needed, and needed Christ, and they were right. And I'll always be grateful to these women uh, for that. So after this experience, I called her and said, hey, because um, she'd been inviting me to church. And of course, I'd always say no. Uh, and I said, hey, I, I think I'd like to come to church with you. And so I ended up going to a Wesleyan parish one Sunday for the young adult service. And the, the way the pastor was talking, it felt like he was speaking to me directly in this big room of at least 100 people. Everything he was saying about, you know, uh, death being the wages of sin and the, these lifestyles and these habits, it was like he just saw my soul and was just calling out everything. And I never experienced something like that. I'd never heard my problems and my addictions and my bad habits and my misery put into a godly perspective before. No one had ever done that before. And I'd been to therapists and rehab and everything, uh, which helped to some degree, but never like this. That was all secular, you know, that treats the body kind of as mechanical and not as this holistic uh, soul-body combo. Uh, which is why so much secular therapy is worthless. It treats you like a machine and ignores the whole soul aspect, the whole spiritual aspect of it. And so I started going and I just never stopped going. And I had people there praying for me and teaching me to love scripture, reading uh, Proverbs in particular was the first book that I think I read, just like pointing out why all the things I was doing were a bad idea. And so these were great revelations to me. I was like, this thing was written thousands of years ago telling me not to do all the things that have been leading me to these terrible outcomes. And so I slowly started to get more and more into it and pray more and see something move in my life in a way that confirmed that this was real, slowly building my trust in God, realizing, hey, when I trust in God, things kind of work out. 
certainly a lot better than when I trusted myself. And after uh, a period of time uh, there, I started to notice some discrepancies between what the Bible said and what the church was doing because they had a big Israeli flag outside. They had female pastors, not in the young adult services, but they had like a program for them. And so I said to the head pastor, who's actually a very well-known head pastor, he was like one of Trump's prayer circle people, um, written a ton of books, this guy. I said to him, how come the Bible says we're the new Israel and women can't be you know, pastors and teachers, but we do these things here? And he said, well, because this is my church and we do things my way. And I thought, that is the worst answer you could have possibly given me if you want me to believe that you are, as you say, a Bible-believing church. So then my mind kind of opened up and started looking, thinking and wondering, is there something more traditional, like something that really sticks with this message better than what this guy has just said to me? And around that time, I um, was talking to a guy who on Gab right now, his name is Neon Revolt. He's a very popular Gabber. Um, he and I are no longer friends, unfortunately, because I, I called him out for his belief in aliens and Q, because uh, he's orthodox, and he kind of fell away on those particular topics with extraterrestrials, and I tried to guide him back on track. He wasn't having it, but he was actually the first person that ever mentioned orthodox Christianity to me, because um, he, he posted about my book on his website. We were talking all the time. Uh, I really hope someday we can reconcile, because I do like the guy, and I know he means well. And I I'll always owe him this debt. He introduced me to orthodoxy. So I said, well, what is that? He said, well, it's the original Christian faith. I never heard it. It never occurred to me that the ancient church was still around, right? It just, as a Protestant, you're never told that because obviously you wouldn't be a Protestant if you knew that, right? So then I Googled Orthodox Christian church near me, and there was one four and a half minutes from my house. And so I went there, and um, over a period of time as an inquirer where the devil tried absolutely everything he could to keep me away, I fell into Catharism for a while, as I've talked about, like dualism, Gnosticism, because I was still kind of a Freemason at the time. I was still kind of had one foot in both worlds, you know, of the occult and the Hermeticism and the Christianity. And the devil was trying every every hook he could to pull me back to his side. Over a period of time, I realized orthodoxy was correct. I became a Trinitarian, which I was not when I started inquiring. And then I found Father Josiah Trenum on YouTube and thought, I got to meet this guy. You know, he's only about an hour and a half north of me when I was in San Diego because he's in Riverside. So I emailed him, said, hey, I'd like to come meet you. He said, great, come on up whenever. So I went up there, had a good meeting with him, and I was so blown away by just who he is. And I thought to myself, if this is the kind of man Orthodox Christianity turns you into, then I want to be an Orthodox Christian because I want what Father Josiah has, just his character and everything, you know. I don't think I'm going to gain the extra four inches of height that he has, but, you know, if orthodoxy does that for me too, I'll be even more grateful. But even if I don't get that part, you know, the dispassion and the joy and the peace and the strength and the courage, all those great masculine traits that orthodoxy can teach, I wanted that. So I went home, became a catechumen that weekend, and um, the rest is history. That was on Pentecost of 2018. So I've been orthodox for about four and a half years. And that is uh, that's that's pretty much the, the story in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I I think I think that story is very illuminating, especially from where you're coming from, when it comes to your opinions on Freemasonry, but also just kind of why it was important to get out. Uh, which I want to go into more about, you know, let diving deep into the occultness of mm -hmm. Freemasonry because I've met 
Freemasons before, and they've been Jewish, they've been Christian, atheist, people that come from all kinds of walks of background, but they seem to have some connection to Christian, at least Christian imagery and um, very aspects of Christianity. But mm-hmm. from what you've described, just the the little that you've described from your story, it seems very incompatible with Christianity. And even when I was a catechumen myself, uh, you know, when I had that talk with my spiritual father, he said you have, would have to repent if you were a member of the Freemasons. And I never understood it until I looked more mm-hmm. into Freemasonry. So I kind of want to talk about, you know, where are these occult aspects that are in Freemasonry and um, the problems with them? Sure, sure. Um, so to begin with, every single statement the Orthodox Church has ever made about Freemasonry has concluded that it is a separate and irreconcilable religion. And that's important because the church, you know, it's not confused about this topic. For hundreds of years, it's had the same opinion on this topic. Not every archdiocese has made a statement, but of those that have, it's unanimous. Uh, Roman Catholics unanimously against Masonry, even though I think the penalty for being a Mason has changed in recent times for them. And uh, Protestants, some of them are okay with Masonry, some of them are not. Now, interestingly, I used to go to my Protestant services, sometimes right after a Masonic meeting, still wearing my Masonic rings and lapel pins. And a couple of people there would try to tell me it was evil. And I would just kind of brush them off. Be like, what do you know? You're not even part of it. In retrospect, of course, they were correct. Evil in a spiritual sense. Um, so the problems with Masonry, and you're right, there is a lot of Christian imagery there. Um, in my lodge uh, in San Diego, they had images of the Saints John, right? John the Baptist and John the Apostle. The Holy, They call it the Holy Lodge of Saints John is somewhere in the... Um, oath that you take or somewhere in the thing you have to memorize in order to move to the next degree, I think is where it is. You have to learn how to read this little coded message, basically this, this coded essay, and you have to learn how to translate the symbols with your mentor and then repeat it verbatim or close to verbatim to pass to the next degree. They talk about the Lodge of the Holy Saints John and whatnot. Now, there aren't any crucifixes uh, that I've seen, except for in one degree of the Scottish Rite, but in that degree, which is the only one outside of the York Rite, that I saw where they talk about Christ, he is lowered to the level of one of the great reformers like Moses or Muhammad. So they kind of, they take the divine aspect away and they try to kind of universalize his experience of crucifixion. They show briefly a picture of him on the cross on the wall and say, look what the world does to a man who tells the truth or something very similar to that, where it's not that he's God, you know, going to the cross for our sins and to, to rescue us from darkness and all that. It's that the world treated him badly because he was this great reformer and teller of truth. The problem, one of many problems with that, is that Moses and Muhammad and Jesus did not all teach the same things, right? You can't tell me that Jesus and Muhammad taught the same thing. How could they both be great reformers telling the truth? It has to be one or the other. Now, this ties into how you join Masonry. They don't care what religion you are as long as you believe in a supreme being and an afterlife. Those are the only spiritual requirements. Most guys that I met did believe in a supreme being in an afterlife. Some were atheists who did not believe in those things. I don't know if you can hear my cat meowing outside the door, but he only, he just wants to spend time with us, me and my <laughs> wife, which is very wholesome of him. Um, where was I? Buddy, you're, you're rudely interrupting me right now. So I'll calm down <laughs> right there. Oh, yeah. So when I joined as an entered apprentice, uh, I actually swore my first oath on the Tao Te Ching. And then the second and third were on the Bible, the Old and New Testament. 
because even though I wasn't Christian at the time, I was starting to like get more into those things and I didn't really consider myself a Taoist anymore. Now, the fact that they let anyone of any religion join and speak as if the religions are equal is a spiritual concept called perennialism, which is the idea that all religions lead to the same place, right? That they are different doctrines given to different people at different times as suited them, but ultimately all say the same thing. Now, the outer expression of that, the ecclesiological expression of perennialism is called ecumenism, right? The idea that all versions of Christianity are the same or all religions are the same, but it's really a spiritual concept before an ecclesiological concept. And the problem with that is in order to believe that all religions teach the same thing, you have to not actually know what a single one of them teaches. Um, Father uh, Stephen Andrew Damick or Andrew Stephen, Father Damick, I, I don't know the first and middle name. I think it's Andrew Stephen Damick has a book called Orthodoxy and Heterodoxy, which I quote in my book that makes this exact point. You can't tell a Buddhist, a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim that all their religions teach the same thing because they are wildly different religions. So to assert that you are secretly wiser than them, you understand their faiths better than they do, is actually to say that you're profoundly ignorant of all of them because they don't teach the same thing. A Buddhist trying to become one with the great nothingness, I don't, I don't think that's what they call it, but that's essentially what it is, to dissolve into the one that is nothing, is not the same as a Muslim trying to get flowing rivers of wine and 15 virgins in the afterlife, is not the same as a Christian trying to experience God's um, eternal presence forever, right? In perfect purity and joy and bliss. These are simply not the same thing. So that's a, a big problem with it. You cannot actually be a Christian and also believe that all these other religions lead to God because then you're, you, you're denying what Christ said, right? No man comes to the Father except through me. So at some point you have to decide, am I a perennialist or a Christian? Now on a different level, you have to decide, am I orthodox or an ecumenist, right? You really can't be both, which is not, again, to say that God can't work outside of the Orthodox Church. Obviously he can and does, but that's still, orthodoxy is still the church planted by the apostles. Both of these ideas can coexist and you'll get extremists on either side, right? Sectarians insisting that outside of orthodoxy, all is just darkness and demonic, uh, which I think anyone who's been through something else on the way to orthodoxy could never, could never affirm. Uh, like when I was in my Protestant days, I met this girl in my parish who I did not know was dying at the time. She's 24, had terminal cancer. And the last thing she did before she died was she uploaded this video to Facebook. All her hair was gone, of course, from a chemo with the biggest smile you've ever seen on her face, reminding everyone that God loves them. No one will ever convince me that's from Satan, what, what, what this girl experienced and embraced her death in, in this way. It's just never going to happen. That's not to say that Protestantism has the fullness of the truth, right? And I think there's a way to say both of these things that shouldn't be complicated to understand, but for some reason on the internet is just cause for controversy and scandal like everything else that you either say or don't say or do or don't do. Uh, right? I mentioned this in my interview with Father Michael Lilly yesterday. Part of being a public person is that anything you say or don't say or do or don't do will be taken as proof that you're evil and a subversive and whatnot. But I think most normal people understand you can say God works outside the church and it's also the one true church. But back to the point of masonry is that as I studied Christianity and the Bible and started praying, I started to feel a little bit uncomfortable in masonry in a way that I hadn't before. I started to think about the doctrines I was being taught. Okay, can I believe no man comes to the Father except through me and also be yoked to unbelievers? Because wait a second, there's a verse about being yoked to unbelievers, isn't there? And I swore these oaths binding myself to masonry, swearing to cover for their crimes, except for a very specific number, 
which is part of the Masonic oaths, by the way, except for murder and treason, you're supposed to lie for your other Masons in a court if they're char charged with a crime. Okay, well, I swore these oaths to lie in court for people that don't believe in Christ. The Bible says don't be yoked to unbelievers. So little things like this continue to pop up over and over again where it seemed clear there was a choice between one or the other. And eventually I just, I, I was so unsettled by being in the lodge. First, it was in the Royal Arch. I thought, I feel really uncomfortable here. I need to step down from my officer's spot because uh, something, something is off, something is amiss. And so I did, and I thought that resolved the problem. Then the same feeling came, kept coming up in this, this body, and this body, and this body. And eventually I realized I need to get out of here. Like God is telling me something. I'm starting to learn what it means to feel convicted, to feel guided, you know, and it was just becoming very clear. Now, of course, the second you try to leave Freemasonry, the spirit of Masonry kicks into overdrive trying to get you to stay. And this is a common experience, not, not just with me, with the guys leaving Masonry that messaged me, that talked to me about it. Guys who have read my book, they're trying to leave Masonry, become Orthodox. They say, okay, well, you know, I, I plan on leaving, but I need to wait six months because I have X, Y, and Z duties to do. And I say, no, 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 that's part of the trick. You have to go now because the Masonic spirit will always find another reason for you to stay because I went through the same thing, right? You get this horrible feeling like you're disappointing all your friends, all your mentors who like groomed you to be an officer, and you're just kind of like flipping them the bird saying, I'm not going to do this anymore, right? That's a bad feeling. No one likes to feel like you're betraying people that are your friends and helped you grow and learn, learn in life, gain status or whatever. But if you want to follow God, you have to sacrifice all this stuff, or, or most of it, depending on what it is, right? Certainly, Mace, you have to get rid of all that stuff. And so right when I started to leave, People started to need me to stay for various reasons. Oh, we got a problem in this lodge over here. Can we can we have you come deal with this? And I and I saw what was happening so clearly in front of me. Like it didn't trick me. I knew what was happening. I could tell. And I said, no, I need to commit to leaving. I need to get out of here. And then the next trick pops up of a group saying, hey, why don't you just come join us? You have to be a Trinitarian Christian to be part of this group. And so I thought I had this great relief. Oh, good. I finally found a group in the Masons where I can be a Christian and still be a Mason, right? So some of the lower tier tricks didn't catch me, but this one caught me. And so I joined this group and I go to the meetings and it's all lectures on Kabbalah and the occult and wizardry and alchemy and all this stuff. And I think, okay, this is, it's very obvious now there's no Christ, there's no Christ here, right? And I started asking the guys after our meetings, one of our meetings went out to lunch, I said, so do you guys believe in Christ? And one of them said, yeah, Christ consciousness. Yeah, for sure. And I was like, yeah, that's not the Christ I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Christ consciousness or your third eye chakra, whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. And so I went back to my hotel. I was hanging out in the hot tub uh, at the hotel, and I just had this this very moving internal experience where I, I was I felt like Jacob, right? I was I was wrestling with God, struggling with God. When I was I was saying to God, like I know I can tell you want me to leave this group, but all of my friends are here. Like this is everything I've devoted my life to for the last couple of years. I have status here. Uh, you know, I get to wear fancy jewelry here. People call me an officer here. People stand up and clap when they say my name at the stated dinner meetings. It's so fancy. I, and I said, God, if I leave this group, I'm not going to have anything left. And very clearly God communicated to me. He said, no, you will have me. And that just totally shattered any last reservations I had. I was like, well, you know what? If I have God, then I don't need any of this other stuff. And so I left. I put in my request for a demit to the secretary. And of course, he tried to convince me to stay. I said, nope, I made up my mind. And I left. 
uh, I wrote this book, which the current version that's out is like the third version. The first version was called Why Jesus Hates Freemasonry, very Protestant title. And then I orthodoxized it, published it. And a priest in New York, an Antiochian priest, emailed me saying, Michael, I read your book. Um, can you rewrite it as a handbook for priests? Because he said at one point in his ministry, every adult man in his parish was a Freemason. And he had no idea. He knew it was wrong, but not how to communicate why it was wrong. So I went through another editing process to make it as simple and easy to follow as possible, put that version out, and that's been the version that's been out for the last four years or so. And thankfully, even though Amazon has been screwing with my sales ranks recently, um, it's been, it's it's gone great. You know, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful when I get messages from guys saying it helped them leave the lodge. I mean, that's why I did it. Um, when I wrote the book, I remember thinking, I could maybe be killed for this. Like, I don't know what the Masons are going to do to me for writing this, if anything. But if I can, my, my mindset was, if I can save one guy from this, even if I get killed for it, that will be a net benefit to me. You know, if I'm martyred for helping save a soul from darkness, that will be a net positive for me. Um, and then it turned out the Masons really didn't care that much that I left. Um, some of them, some of the guys I was in the lodge with, I don't think even know that I'm not a Mason anymore. I got a call last year from this guy that I was in a couple lodges with. I mean, I had, we were in the same main lodge. We go to meet these other lodges. He called me up and said, hey, he called me Brother Whitcoff, right? That's my Mason name. How are you doing? Are you still active? He didn't even know that I left, you know, years ago. Um, so thankfully, there's been no blowback besides one upset email from someone accusing me of being a zealot and saying, if you ever want to come back to the true light, we will welcome you with open arms. It's like, okay, buddy, I, I think I'm good. But, you know, thanks for your concern. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been overwhelmingly positive reaction. Um, there's even a couple reviews on Amazon. There's one recently, at least, from a Freemason who appreciated the book and reviewed it in a very honest spirit, which I appreciated. He thought, you know, reading this book, he said, I think we need to engage with our critics honestly. And reading this book made me grapple with some of my own beliefs and think about what I what I really believe in. Um, so that was nice. You know, I have a bunch of fake angry reviews from Masons who have never read the book, but it was nice that at least one guy took the time to engage with it honestly. And uh, yeah, ever since then, it's just you know, my my real goal with my whole presence online is I want to convert Freemasons, Jews, and pickup artists. You know, these last five years I've had to focus mostly on this one group of Freemasons and occultists, um, but hopefully as time goes on, I'll be able to help guys out of these other groups as well. I don't even know if pickup artists are a thing anymore after COVID. I, I, I suspect that kind of ruined a lot of the uh, cold approaching on the street that people used to do. You know, everyone's wearing a mask now and it's super weird, uh, depending on where you are in the country. Um, but assuming there are still people doing it, I would like to love to help them out too. Obviously, Roosh was a big pickup artist as well, much, uh, much deeper into it than I was even traveling all over the world for it. Um, so I really hope his conversion brought some guys out of the fornication too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think I think you've mentioned a lot of great aspects of how Freemasonry is not only incompatible with Christianity, but specifically Orthodox Christianity, and uh, the, a lot of the problems, especially with the occultness. But but something that really um, got me was the fact that they they encourage illegal behavior and, yeah. and such as lying under oath for um and this kind of thing makes me think about the question of uh why are the freemasons problematic that that already kind of answers it a bit but 
you know, a lot of to a lot of people would be like, oh well, those Freemasons they're just kind of weird. They do some weird, you know, things that may be satanic, but they're overall very harmless. But um, as I've seen you say that that's not the case. Uh, um, even just if we just looked at the advocating for uh, illegal behavior, but various other things and I want to talk about those things of, of what makes the Freemasons uh, dangerous and and a real problem for uh, our society generally well oh my goodness my cat just cannot calm down out there um, so their philosophy has permeated our culture to such an extent that it's completely mainstream it's mainstream in TV shows movies uh, it's almost like normalized now so I almost feel that the institution itself has kind of achieved its purpose already and that it's kind of a, just a bunch of old guys dying out at this point, which is why they started recruiting, which they're not really supposed to do. It's supposed to be to be one, ask one. But, you know, now you see them putting out their own documentaries about it, trying to ask guys if they want to join. They're doing that because this, the, the thing is dying out, especially with COVID. You know, they can't, you can't have a meeting in a room with a bunch of 90-year-olds that are all terrified of, of this thing because they're in the, you know, the... the uh, demographic people that might actually die from it, right? They could die from COVID. So they stopped doing meetings, and I don't know if they've started doing them again or not. Um, but the danger to society is not necessarily any particular Freemason because most of them just have no idea what's going on. Most Masons are nominally Christian. They're not doing anything wrong. They're just regular family guys and businessmen. Uh, but the higher up the ladder you go, I think the more you see, the more influence you have. There was one guy in a group, and I have no proof of this, but he came off as a as an intelligence community kind of guy. And I, I can't tell you why I got that feeling. I just did, that this was someone with a lot of secrets and power. Um, and one thing you learn as a Mason is how to discern who's dangerous. And it's interesting because it's not who you think. The dangerous guys are not the ones bragging on the internet about how tough they are, covered in tattoos, walking their pit bulls around, you know, carrying guns on their hip. These guys, they might be dangerous on like a very small level. The dangerous people are the ones that seem like just nice, regular old men who just so happen to have much more power than you ever want to know about. It's sort of this subtle thing that emanates from them. And it's very hard to describe, but when you're around it enough, you kind of start to pick up on it. Uh, the people who are 33s who don't ever tell you that, you might never even find out. The people with secrets, those are the dangerous people because that's almost, it's almost like a little mafia uh, aspect to it. And I'm not saying, I never saw any crimes committed by the Freemasons or anything like that. I, was ne I never committed a crime for the Masons, but this culture of secrecy that it very specifically cultivates is the sort of thing where the vibe you get is like, well, you wanna make sure I keep secrets, why? Like, what is it you're grooming me for that I'm gonna have to be secretive about? And beyond that point, I can only speculate because I was only there for a couple of years and I never did any of that stuff or saw any of that stuff. But you, you learn to be afraid of people that seem harmless, uh, which is weird. You know, like it's the nice old 80-year-old who just like grabs your arm in a certain way when he's talking to you, and you, you just get this feeling like, oh, I better not make this guy upset. There was one very strange incident in the Scottish Rite where one of the members of the Scottish Rite had uh, been talking about this book of Illuminati rituals that I ended up picking up and reading, and I brought it up with one of the older Scottish Rite guys who was in charge of a lot of stuff. And his, his attitude changed very quickly. He said, we don't talk about that here. Like, shut up, you know, was the vibe. And I said, oh, 
I, I, I was just talking about something another guy here you know mentioned this book that I thought was really interesting he said who told you about that book I was like oh this something serious just happened in this little interaction here like something was said that shouldn't have been said that was supposed to be secret and I've never mentioned this in any interview or video I've done because I still don't know what to make of it but the the vibe that I got was that the higher-ups in Freemasonry are also members of other groups and so even if masonry itself as an institution doesn't have anything bad the guys in charge of it are part of things that are bad and again this is just speculation this is the feeling that i got and we know there are members of other groups in masonry i mean i was uh in the uh, amorc for a while at rosicrucian order uh there were guys in masonry that were members of other builders of the adidum or the golden dawn or whatnot a lot of guys were part of other occult groups and i'm sure some of them were part of more dangerous groups too like the actual left hand path black magic uh, groups of that nature and every once in a while you'd have an interaction with someone where they just kind of give you this little flash of that energy you go oh that person is probably not as harmless as they seem now on a on a political level it's tough because masons have been on every side of the spectrum you know you find them on both sides of lots of wars you find the liberal democracy masons you find the monarchist masons you have napoleon right the tyrannical mason you have hitler suppressing the masons um so it's hard to say exactly what the Masons do politically, except that they were definitely the, the hand moving the force of revolutions. That there's no question. Whether that revolution was towards a liberal democracy or towards a tyranny, you tend to find them being the movers and shakers behind major overthrowals of whatever established order you may find at any given time. They're revolutionaries, really. Um, that spirit is certainly present there, even if most of them, like I said, are just normal people. That spirit of that revolutionary spirit certainly resides within masonry, and the fact that the some of these guys are so well connected globally, um, like you find guys or power climbers there that want to be top guys in the UN and Rotary Club and whatnot, their connections can be frightening when combined with that revolutionary spirit, and that combined with the secrecy, they've all sworn each other to secrecy to cover for each other's crimes. Well, now you don't really know what it is that they're doing, right? They're not going to tell you certainly. They're not going to tell on each other. They're supposed to tell on each other for murder and treason, like I said, but anything else, they're not supposed to do it. Um, so it's hard to actually pin down exactly what the Masons are doing uh, because it's not really a monolith like that. But like I said, when you look at the revolutions, you do tend to find their fingerprints on things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's interesting because as we mentioned, they're, they've been very pervasive throughout history with major and key figures i mean even looking at our own revolution um that could very much could be called a, a freemason revolution uh with the yeah. just sheer number of people involved in the revolution who were freemasons and yeah. um so where i want to kind of go to 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 kind of wrap this conversation up is is why is it so pervasive why do we see so many historical figures at major events that all happened to be Freemasons and part of a Freemasonry and mm. how did it spread so that's a really good question so globally that's a really good question I think the ultimate answer is that men who have convinced themselves that they're destined for great things tend to gravitate towards wherever the power is and when people see the power that Masonry has had politically and spiritually someone convinced of their own fate as a great man of history is going to go there and learn how to adapt to the structure and work their way up it to get more and more power 
So I think it appeals to that sense of pride and greatness that a lot of people have. Um, and I know from my own time there, the spirit of masonry kind of fills your heads with these kind, fills your head with these kind of thoughts of your own greatness, um, like these almost visions of yourself walking the halls of power, helping guide humanity towards a better future. People like this uh, want the power because they think they're going to do something good with it, right? Now. I made a video called Is Jordan Peterson a Freemason years ago that his fanboys seem to have found recently because I've got a lot of hate comments on that video in the last couple of days. I don't think he is, but I think he has that same sense of himself as a great man of history that ultimately is really a great temptation, especially for people with the high IQ who think that they're going to be able to figure out the perfect system because ultimately it's Gnosticism. Excuse me, this idea that you're going to design the perfect utopian system First of all, if you're doing it without God, you're going to end up with something bad. Even if you've convinced yourself that God is behind it, which has happened over and over, all these Gnostic revolutions that Eric Vogelin has written so many, so much amazing stuff about, as well as Father Seraphim Rose in the Orthodox Revival Course. And then the big problem with the utopia, and if you want to be the great man of history who fixes everything, first of all, you're really acting from a spirit of Antichrist, whether you realize that or not. Even though I think most guys who believe they're going to fix things, think they're doing something good. I don't think they consciously believe themselves to be evil. The problem is, how do you impose this utopia on the people who don't agree with you? And the answer is always blood. Every time. It has to involve mass violence. What's communism? It's an attempt to build utopia, to immanentize the eschaton, as Eric Vogelin says, to take the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and impose it on the earth in a physical, material way that removes the transcendent. First of all, the system itself obviously doesn't work. You see the fruits of it everywhere. So you have the system that won't work, plus the fact you have to impose it violently. But if someone is truly convinced of, by this Antichrist spirit that they are the ones to fix humanity's problems, why would they stop at any given crime or immoral thing, right? To them, it's just, well, you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet, right? Isn't it worth sacrificing 10 million people to save 8 billion people? I think that's the attitude. And so that spirit that pervades the world and always has this antichrist spirit, even since the apostles' times, like they write about, that can that can go into any man's soul who's prone to this this kind of temptation, right? We all have we all have different temptations, but it's kind of within the same umbrella of passion in general. People who really lean into that temptation are always going to be guided towards where where they can get the power and the resources to impose their perfect world upon the rest of us. And so at the end of the day, I think that's probably the answer to why you find these guys gravitating towards it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good answer and, and certainly an explanation that makes logical sense of why it's so pervasive. But, um, uh, I, I appreciate you talking to me about this because I think that a lot of people kind of dismiss Freemasonry and, and kind of go, it's just, you know, this kooky little club that doesn't really have um, that much, as many as people like to, you know, alert about. But uh, I think it's pretty clear that there there is influence that they have, and it's a negative influence. So I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I wanted to give you the floor now to promote anything you wanted to promote to my audience, uh, anything you want them to know about that you're doing, um, or just in general. Um, so I want to give you the floor now. Sure. Well, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure being here. You know, every time people ask me about Freemasonry, I end up keep getting questions I haven't heard before. 
giving answers I haven't given before. So that keeps things fresh. You know, you'd think that you'd get bored of talking about the same topic, but every time it's something different, you ask some great questions. So thank you for that. Uh, like I said, I'm Brother Augustine on YouTube and Telegram, uh, Michael Whitcoff on Gab. Um, my book, if you're interested in this conversational, or if you're a Freemason listening, discerning whether you should leave to become Christian and Orthodox Christian, ideally. Uh, my book is called On the Masons and Their Lies. You can get that on Amazon and Kindle paperback or audio form. I also have another book on Amazon called Theo Poetica, which is a collection of classical poems that I wrote, as well as explanations of what I'm doing in those poems. And then an essay at the end, I think it's a couple essays actually, about the art of poetry in general, which I really hoped when I published it would start this revolution and return to classical poetry away from the stuff that's out there now. But sadly, it's it's more niche than I even I realized the desire to learn how to write with meter and rhythm and rhyme and uh, talent, I would say, which is greatly lacking from modern quote poetry, which is more of like a uh, fortune cookie than an actual art form. But that's neither here nor there. Um, I also have a Rockfin channel, uh, rockfin.com slash brother Augustine. Uh, so if you're interested in any of this stuff, uh, feel free to give me a follow, subscribe. I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, as my, Michael Wickoff or Brother Augustine on Twitter? I think I'm Brother Augustine, right? Uh, yeah, Brother Augustine. You think I would know this. Yeah, Brother Augustine on Twitter as well. I get confused sometimes about what my name is on which, which platform, but I know it's one or the other. Uh, so yeah, feel free to give me a like, follow, pick up the book if you're interested in masonry. I obviously go much more in depth in the book than I was able to go in this video. And uh, other than that, I just want to thank you again for the invitation, and uh, I hope that this was beneficial to your audience. Yeah, I, I definitely think it was, and I again, I appreciate you coming on for it. Um, so thank you so much. Sure. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, thank you. you. Now watch this drive.